Amen. So we're, we're going to talk about the law of God. The law of God. This is hopefully a general overview of the law of God. We'll be touching on some of these themes uh, throughout the rest of the study of Deuteronomy. But again, as Moses is introducing the law of God, so I hope to be able to do the same thing. But before we do that, I'm going to talk about the cities of refuge. You might be wondering, what in the world does that have to do with this particular part of the Scripture? Uh, there is a, a reason that it's there. After the cities of refuge, we'll talk about the law as a divine gift from the Almighty God. And then we'll discuss some of the uses of the law for Christians today, really for everyone at all times. I remember when uh, there's some people we knew who were praying for a child. They had been unable to get pregnant for a long time. And we prayed and prayed and prayed. And after a number of years, they eventually were able to have a child. She got pregnant, and praise God, and it was a wonderful thing. Now this child is in his 20s, um, and they've had a pretty normal time raising this child. Um, and it's always uh, interesting to me to think that they prayed for so long for God's grace and His provision to give them this child, and now that the child is older, they've kind of forgotten that this was a direct answer to prayer. It was a gift. And it reminded me that we need to remember the goodness of God and the provision of God. I'm also seeing similar things when people uh, moving into this part of the state, into this part of the county. Uh, what are the What's the first thing that someone who comes to the church or to this part of the county does, the first thing they do. And my understanding and my experience is they take out their cameras and they start taking pictures. They're taking pictures of mountains and things that um, I'm trying hard not to lose sight of, but in the midst of normal life, you forget what a beautiful place that God has placed us in. We are too quick to take for granted the blessings and the provision of God. We forget very quickly well, this is one of the things that Moses is trying to get the people not to do, to remember that God Himself spoke to them. Don't forget the privilege of being God's child. Israelites, Christians, don't forget the privilege of having God's Word. This is kind of the theme of, of this part of the Scripture. But what are these cities of refuge and how do they possibly relate to what I just said? If you look at verses 41 through 43, you'll note that this, this cities of refuge portion of the Scriptures doesn't seem to fit nicely between the end of the prologue to this covenant treaty document, which ended in verse 40, and the beginning of the stipulations of the covenant, which begins in verse 44. So what is this doing here? Well, this is a literary device in the Hebrew language, which is like a parenthesis. It's, it's kind of like, this marks the end of the first speech that Moses gave, and it also separates it from the beginning of the second speech that Moses gives. Uh, the prologue has ended, and this is a spacer, if you will. But it's more than a spacer, of course, because it's, it's more of a divine intermission. This is inspired by God. And because every word of Scripture is for our training and for our good, it's for our own instruction, we know that there's something for us as well. 
Well, there's two things I think we should note. Um, these cities of refuge were to be on the east and west sides of the Jordan River for the people of Israel. They're, they're described in Numbers chapter 35. And the point is that if someone accidentally kills someone else, they can flee to the city of refuge if they're concerned about vengeance. They could go there and be safe. The cities of refuge are, are a display of grace. It shows the importance not only of justice, but of life. What we see in the cities of refuge is, I believe, the placement of this information. The law is about to be proclaimed to this redeemed people, beginning in verse 44. And until verse 26, Moses will be expounding on the law. And before he does this, the context of the law, you remember, is the redemption from Egypt and exile. So the context of the giving of the law is to redeem people. He's giving the law to people who are saved from slavery in Egypt. But also the immediate context of the introduction to the law, which begins in 44, is these cities of refuge. They were the place where people went for grace. So it serves as a short reminder as well that the law comes in the context of grace. Today, we no longer have cities of refuge. There's nowhere we can go if we need grace. But we have Jesus Christ. Amen? We have Jesus Christ as our strong refuge and tower. He is where we go when we need grace to help us in our time of need. So this is more than just a parenthesis between two major speeches of Moses or two major parts of the text. I believe it's a deliberate proclamation of the mercy of our holy God. The grace. The grace of the, the law of God is everywhere if you take time to notice it. So in transition, you'll note that chapter 4, verse 44 begins the actual stipulations of this covenant treaty document. If you note on your cardstock, we're going to be from 444 until chapter 26 talking about the stipulations of the covenant. These are the things that God requires. And really, the first part of chapter 5 through verse 26 or so, this is a preview of the whole rest of the document. Uh, Moses is outlining the Ten Commandments, and then he's going to explain the Ten Commandments. But here, all we're seeing are broad strokes. Moses is showing the authority of God, the setting of God, and... This is important for the Israelites to understand before he goes into the actual exposition of each commandment. And remember, the context of the giving of the law, Moses reminds them again and again, is their salvation. They're saved from Egypt. It's the context for us today as well in studying God's law, our own salvation. So let's look at verse uh, 44 through 49 where Moses really begins introducing the stipulations. Uh, he says that the law that Moses set before the people of God, this is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt beyond the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor, etc., etc. And he explains the context just on the other side of the Jordan River. Deuteronomy, if you remember your Greek, means second law. Second law. Deuteronomy is second law. But this isn't the second law that Moses has given the people. Rather, it's the second time that Moses has taught the Israelites the law. 
The first time was at Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. And the second time is here just east of the Jordan River. So Moses is reminding the people as he sets the law before them that the ground on which they stand, God has already given them. God has given you this land that used to belong to Og and Sihon. These were great kings and they've been defeated. This land has been given to you as a gift by God. And the implication is that they should continue to follow the law on the other side of the Jordan, which we studied last week in chapter 4, verse 39 and 40. Moses said, Know therefore today and lay it on your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath, and there is no other. Therefore you shall keep His statutes and His commandments, which I command you today. So he's concluding the prologue with this statement which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. The law was to go with them. It was to be with them in future generations, just as it was with them there. So Moses gave the people the law a second time. He's teaching them the law before they cross over the Jordan. And it seems that one of his, his points of application is that the law of God has no shelf life. The revealed will of God, the law of God, is eternal. And I think we, we need to continue to emphasize what we mean by the law. Certainly we mean the Ten Commandments. Of course we do. But the law throughout the Scriptures is used to summarize really just a name for the Bible. The whole Bible is called the law. The commandments and the imperatives of Scripture are called the law. Certainly the moral law, the Ten Commandments, are law. And it's all summarized by Christ as loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the first commandment, and loving your neighbor as yourself. So all of the law is useful for us as Christians. Theologians have long separated Deuteronomy and Leviticus into understandable parts of law so that we can really apply them to the best of our abilities. They see a ceremonial part of the law which points to Christ. It's all of the temple worship, all of the animal sacrifices and this kind of thing. Those things point to Christ. All of the feasts, the Passover, it points to Christ. Then they see a civil law that was meant to govern the nation of Israel. And this civil law related to how the governance was to happen uh, is to be applied, the principles are to be applied to our lives today. The generally, general equity of the law, as it's spoken of in the Westminster Confession, are to be applied to our lives today. And then the moral law, which is best summarized in the Ten Commandments. This certainly is for us. All of it is for us in one sense. But the moral law, is the center of all morality and ethics for all mankind. And it's the way that we know to please our Father in heaven. It's how we know our duty on earth to serve our Heavenly Father. The moral law is always in force for all humanity. Dr. Doug Kelly says the law of God is the expression of the very heart of God. And it shows us God's holy character in every relationship of life. And this is certainly true. So as Moses told the Israelites, the law that was given on the mountain is still for you today. And it's for all the generations that will cross into the promised land. I would say the law of God is still important for us as Christians today. No matter where you were born or where you live, you are bound by God's law. 
thought uh, it would be a, maybe a useful time at this point to just discuss how we apply the law of God in very difficult situations. The love of Christ consuming us to follow the law of God, to keep our eyes on Jesus. If you look at the things that are happening in Israel right now, they are truly horrific. The attack on Israel by Hamas was a horrible, horrible thing. So what should our response be as believers? What should our response be as Christians? I've had some people tell me things like this. We need to just take them all out. What Joshua should have finished, we need to finish today. Is that right? The Sixth Commandment is pretty clear that murder is not something that we should support. Let me spend just a moment looking at our larger catechism, which talks about the violations of the Sixth Commandment, what's forbidden and what's required in the Sixth Commandment. Think of this in the context of any war, not just the war in Israel, but any war where atrocities are being committed. The duties required in the Sixth Commandment are careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, avoiding all occasions and temptations and practices which tend to the unjust taking away of life of any, but just defense thereof against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat, drink, and physic, sleep, labor, and recreations, by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous speeches and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient, bearing, and forgiving of injuries, and requiring good for evil, comforting and succoring the distressed, protecting and defending, defending the innocent. That's what it means to obey the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not murder. What sins are forbidden in the Sixth Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Sixth Commandment are all taking away of life of ourselves or others, except in case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense, neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life, sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, whatever else tends to the destruction of life of any. So how are we to reconcile a desire for justice with a desire to obey the commandments? What are we to do? Well, certainly those who are active combatants, if it's a time of warfare, we hope that they die. If you are holding a gun and you hate me, and I'm holding a gun on the opposite side of this war, uh, and you want to hurt innocent people, then certainly we would hope that Hamas would be defeated, uh, and defeated decisively. But what about this whole thing? We just need to finish them off. We just need to wipe out the whole part of Gaza. This is not a Christian thought at all. Are we going to be the ones going in there and cutting off their babies' heads? Is that what we do? 
Do we line up the women and elderly on a wall and we shoot them? No. No, we don't wipe anyone out. These people are not active combatants. What should we do? We defend our homes. We defend our property. And people who are not combatants, they need to be brought to some kind of justice if they've done something, bring them to a trial and punish them appropriately. What if someone surrenders? This is another question of warfare. What if Hamas surrenders? They lay down on the ground. Do we just shoot them right there? Of course not. They've just surrendered. They're going to receive justice, but through a trial, not some vigilante justice. We don't become the evil that we hate. So I thought that this would be a wonderful corrective for those who are as incensed of the the violence as I am. I was more angry last Saturday than probably I should have been. What a horrible thing to kill innocent people in their own neighborhoods, in their own houses. And yet our response must be a response that is godly and biblical. So what does this say about, this is another question we've received, and this doesn't necessarily, um, or I've received, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the law of God. But is what's going on in uh, Gaza some high prophetic event that has some high purpose? Um, Maybe. We just don't know. Like These why questions, why things happen, we just really don't know. It's highly suspect that this is some significant prophetic purpose. Um, Look at Israel's history. Much, much worse has happened to Israel over the course of the last hundred years. Thousands of years. The world hates the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The world hates them because the world is ruled by the enemy, by Satan. He's the ruler of the air. And if Romans 11 means anything, then there is still something that God is doing with the biological descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we should pray. We should pray for Romans 11 to happen. We should pray that there is a great revival as Paul talks about. He says, I'm a, uh, I'm a descendant of Abraham. God has not forgotten His people. They've been given the, the prophets. They've been given the patriarchs and the law. It's all been given to them. So we pray for a revival in the land of Israel. We pray for peace and protection. We pray for justice for those who are wicked. And the wicked who are in war, we want them to die. The wicked who are captured in peace, we want them to have a fair trial and a long imprisonment. But we approach this conflict through the law of the Scriptures. And we don't want to murder. Happy to talk about this more. I know it's a complex situation. I've tried to narrow it down into a two-minute conversation um, or teaching. But certainly it arouses great passion among all those who love the people of God and see ourselves as grafted in to the family of Abraham. So the law of God, the law of God is something that believers love. And it's something that non-Christians are condemned by. The law reflects something that they are unable to do, as we read in Romans 8 and something that condemns them and stands over them because they continue to break it. They can do nothing else. They're in the flesh. Yet Jesus came and He fulfilled the law. 
And He shows us the law. And He is the truth of the law. So when we read through the rest of Deuteronomy, we need to remember that Jesus exemplified the keeping of the law. And He knew Deuteronomy. He probably had it memorized. When He was tempted by Satan, what did He quote? Deuteronomy. He quoted the law. The law of Deuteronomy is what... It was like the the thing that made Jesus go by the Holy Spirit. The, The law was how He functioned. And it's something that we also should love because it reflects the Father. As we love God and love our neighbors as ourselves, we will find ourselves more and more loving the law, especially the Ten Commandments, the moral law. But even all humanity benefits from the law because it's written on the human heart. The world is not as wicked as it could be because of the restraining impact of the civil law in our lives. Things that are going on wherever there's war in the world could be much, much worse were it not for the law written on the human heart. So praise God for that. So Moses is telling these people before they cross the Jordan River that this is the same law I gave your parents and it still applies to you today. Now I do want to answer before we move on some who would argue that the Ten Commandments, the law of God has no relevance for the Christian. This is an ancient heresy called antinomianism. Anti, of course, means against and nomian is law. The antinomian heresy, which says, all I have to do is love Jesus. The rest of it, it just doesn't matter. Well, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus' greatest sermon seemed to fly directly in the face of that. Also, all through the New Testament, we see the apostles, not to, not to mention Jesus Christ, exhorting us to obey the commandments and to love God's law. A couple of places I want to highlight to you. John, 1 John chapter 5, where John says, Everyone who believes in Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love and obey His commandments. For the love of God, this, excuse me, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. What commandments is He talking about? He's talking about the whole Word of God. And these commandments are not burdensome because the Spirit has made them life. Let's also look at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19. He's talking about people who have... um, who were slaves or who were uncircumcised and they wanted to change their lives, change their situation in life um, to be a Christian or as part of their Christianity. And Paul's telling them, no, stay in the situation you were in. If you were circumcised, stay circumcised. If you're uncircumcised, stay uncircumcised. You don't have to follow the Jewish um, civil or ceremonial laws. For he says in uh, verse 19, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So Paul's making a distinction between the moral law 
and the ceremonial law. So we are free from the law's condemnation. But the law keeping was never meant as a system for salvation in the first place. Jews could not be saved by keeping the law any more than you can because no one was able to do it. It reflected the heart of God and the depravity of man. And for the Christian, the condemnation of the law has ended. So we finally find ourselves in our lives in Christ free to obey the law. We are finally able to do good. And what's good? It's in the Word of God. The law which once condemned us now is a joy to us. The law did, Paul says in Romans 6 and 7, the law did condemn us in a way because it showed our sin. We know what sin is because God has given us His law and yet all of our sin has been nailed to the cross. So the Christian is free from condemnation under the law, but our hearts have also been changed to love the law. So we see the law not only as an obligation and the rule of our life, but it's also a great joy to please our Father and obey the commandments. We also see the character of our Father, what pleases Him. We see the obedience of our King, Jesus, who obeyed perfectly and we want to be like Him. So the commandments were once sin and death, but now they became life to us. So Moses is saying this is the second reading of the law. We don't have it as a second reading for us. We actually have a reading of the law as often as we want to open this book. It's for us to read every day. The Scriptures, the law, is the greatest gift God has given us. It's eternal. Moses goes on in chapter 5, verse 1. This is the third point. It reflects the character of our God. Moses summoned Israel and said, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us. And the Lord spoke with you face to face out of the mountain, out of the midst of the fire. By now you know, I think, that when you see hear, O Israel, that this is the word Shema, it means hear and obey. It means listen and do. There wasn't a, a word uh, necessarily that Paul or that uh, Moses ever uses. It just means hear with your ears only. It's always a hear and obey, and that's Shema. Hear, O Israel, he says. Listen to these words and be careful to do them but he specifically reminds them of just who they are dealing with. The Almighty God who spoke from the fire. This is the one you're to hear. The Almighty God who made the covenant with you. Let's just focus on verse 2 for a moment. The Lord, our God, made a covenant with us in Horeb. There's some some significant key words in the Hebrew text that I want to, to highlight for you. The Lord. This is Yahweh. This is the personal name for God. We see, first of all, that Moses is saying, your lawgiver is Yahweh. He's the eternal God. The infinite, eternal, and unchangeable Holy One. He's completely sovereign. He's wise. He's mighty. He's good. 
He told Moses, I am that I am out of the burning bush. And he was stating his eternal being. He's not like Moses. He's not like us. And this is the lawgiver, Yahweh. He needs no one or nothing outside himself. He alone is holy and he alone is God. And this law reflects the character of God. This law that was spoken to Moses and to the Israelites from the the fire reflects His own nature. And to reject the law is to reject Him. The Lord our God, Yahweh our God, made a covenant with us at Horeb. Not only is He Yahweh, but He's our God. This is the word Elohim. In Genesis chapter 1, the word that's used over and over again For God is Elohim. Our lawgiver is also our creator. Elohim who created the heavens and the earth. This is the same God who created the whole universe. The lawgiver is the same God who owns you and created you. He's the same God who created your ability to think, your your reason. He created morality. All of his testimonies are good and right and true. He created you and he created the law. And he gave it to you. But thirdly, we see that he made a covenant with us in Horeb. A covenant. It's a reflection, the law is a reflection of your covenant keeping God. He has made a personal covenant with you. Uh, To obey the law apart from an understanding of the covenant would be like getting married. Getting married and technically following the details of your marriage contract, but not actually knowing or loving your spouse. What kind of marriage would that be? I've never committed adultery. Yeah, but do you know your wife? Mm. No, but I've never committed adultery. There's a technical obedience, and that's not what God is talking about when he talks about the law. It's a covenantal obedience. It's an obedience that implies love. To obey the law without love would be pharisaical in the extreme. Our God is always faithful to keep His promises. It's personal. He's made a covenant with who? With us. Not with your fathers, He said. In other words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they did not hear from the fire, the giving of the law, but you did. This is a special privilege. And we know that His side of the covenant will always be kept because He's God. And the good news for us is that His side actually is our side. What He requires, He also provides. We were once apart from God, covenant breakers, but now we're close to God by the grace of Christ. Here again, this word from Peter that I read this morning. But you are a chosen race. Peter's talking to the church. And it sounds like he's talking to Israel before they entered the promised land. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The last thing I think we should see in conclusion is just not only is 
your lawgiver, your creator, not only is your lawgiver Yahweh, the Almighty God, not only is um, your lawgiver in covenant with you, but your lawgiver is also your redeemer. Verse 6, he says, I, the Lord your God, am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He redeemed them. This is a, a personal redemption. He redeemed them because He loved them, he says later in Deuteronomy. The first time that God came down from heaven to speak the truth to His people was at Mount Sinai. He came in fire. The second God time, the second time that God came down to speak truth was in Bethlehem in Judea. And he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He wrote the law. He shows us how to fulfill the law. And He shows us how to live in light of the law. To please the Lord. To honor our Father in heaven. So it's the great joy and delight of Christians to obey our Heavenly Father. He redeemed us from sin and from slavery to Satan. He brought us out of the world and made us His own. He is the Word. Christ said He is the Word. The lawgiver. And we should honor Him and honor His law. Honor His Word. And we'll discuss this more over the next many months as we look at the law of God in Deuteronomy. Let us pray before we partake of the Lord's Supper. Almighty God, we do thank You in Jesus' name that You have given us such precious promises. You have opened up the law of God to our own hearts. You have shown us the great value of this privilege to know Your law to know how to please You, to know how to worship You, to know how to love You well. We pray that we would do as John has instructed us, that we would love God by obeying His commandments. And these are not burdensome for us. May they be a joy for our souls. And we pray that as we turn to the Lord's Supper, we might remember all that the Lord Jesus has done, not only to keep Your law, but to free us from the condemnation of the law by nailing all of our sins upon the cross. 